Welcome to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Greenwood, Mississippi. We are a community of Christians that exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ and influence the Delta for the glory of God. More information about Westminster can be found at www.wpcgreenwood.org. So uh, if, if you're visiting with us or if you're trying to figure out where we are, it's Luke this morning. We're uh, in a series going through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, this is our 10th sermon in Luke and uh, Matthew uh, chapter 5 as we come to Matthew, the call of Matthew or Levi. So in, in the, the world of psychology, there's this phenomenon that can happen in which entire groups of people develop collective false memories. Um, that the way you processed and remembered things aren't actually correct or how they actually were, but so many people processed and remembered it that same way that your and our false memories were cemented into our minds as fact. That's just the truth. And a couple playful examples, y'all have probably seen some of these, is also goes by something called the Mandela effect, but uh, one example would be uh, the Bernstein Bears. Or remember that children's book uh, about the, the family of bears? You know, people will fight you over the fact that they were called the Bernstein Bears, when in reality it was, is, and always has been the Berenstain Bears. Um, and, and the theory, at least, is that since Steen is a more common name than Stain, um, that kids just glanced at it, assumed that it was Steen, and just kind of went on with their lives. Um, and then there's the Monopoly Man. You know, when people visualize the Monopoly Man, many people visualize him in their mind as this kind of rich man that has a monocle over one of his eyes, right? Because all rich people have monocles. And uh, yet the real Monopoly Man, if you go and look him up, does not nor never has had a monocle. Uh, we just kind of feel that in in our minds. And we've, we've, we've had that false thought so much that now what is actually false we, we believe in our bones to be true. And this happens all, in, in, it's, you know, our minds are so weird. And, and so this just weird thing that happens. Well, if that can happen with kids' books and with board games, then, then how much more so can that happen when it comes to Jesus? That we hear a few things and jump to conclusions or make assumptions. And if enough people make those same assumptions, then we all start kind of believing it. To, well, that's what the Bible says. You know, this thing can happen all the time. So Sophie's class, and I know probably all, everyone in here at some point has had to read Where the Red Fern Grows, right? This classic of American literature. Um, and the, the author in one of the first chapters makes, mentions, makes mention of where the Bible says God helps those who help themselves, right? But well, there's just one problem. You know, if anybody who actually knows, like, you know that that was not God who said that. That was Ben Franklin that said that, Right? Um, if anything, the gospel is that God helps the helpless. And, and so, you know, enough people read that or think that, enough people make these false assumptions that it leads to an entire Christian subculture that isn't even Christian. You see what I'm saying? It, it leads to churches that are gospel-less, Christ-less. And, and so this is so serious because so often what we think about uh, when we think about Jesus, can actually be a religion more in line with what the Pharisees taught and believed. You know, often what many think Jesus was all about is the very thing he, was, he condemned. It's the opposite of what Jesus was about. And so that's um, why it's good to slowly walk through the gospel, say like the gospel of Luke, 
And we get to actually see and hear what the historical Jesus literally said and did. And so like when our false assumptions and thoughts come face to face with the grace of the actual Jesus, it's as if God is holding that barren stain bears book, pointing to the A, saying, look, it's always been this way. Grace has always been like this. Jesus has always been like this. And so we find that whatever we thought before, Jesus is even better than that. And so when it comes to addressing false thoughts and false ideas, Luke, he, he hits pretty close to home this morning in reminding us of who Jesus came to save as we learn of him calling Levi, and we're going to call him Matthew from here on out, or Matthew. And so with all that said, let's, let's read God's word, Matthew, or, sorry, Luke 5, uh, 27 through 32, and then we'll, we'll, we'll dive in. So Luke 5, 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, And Jesus said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, Levi, or Matthew, rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is God's word. Uh, Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, as we come and just sit in this passage for the next bit, we ask that your spirit would come um, and teach us. Lord, show us ways that we just... I mean, we're thinking this is like, this guy's a monocle. um, But show us what the gospel is. Uh, show us what it always has been, uh, and may it minister to our souls. We ask this in Christ. Amen. You know, just when we think we've reached the limit of God's sovereign and God's gracious call, you know, we, we read about what happened at Matthew's tax booth and Matthew's house. And, and so those are going to be our kind of how we're going to work through this. Matthew's tax booth, Matthew's house. First, Matthew's tax booth. You know, the degree of hatred that people had for tax collectors. I know we say this all the time, but like, it, it can't be overstated. Um, and I've, I have a hard time thinking of just one person that everybody like universally hates. Um, I mean, usually like your mom or like your kids, somebody's going to love you, right? But somebody that everybody hates. Uh, one pastor said that Matthew, I think I've shared this before, but Matthew would be the modern day equivalent to the guy who sells drugs to middle schoolers in the back of the gas station. Um, you know, we, we hear about those types of people, and we have a visceral dislike for them. I mean, they're everything wrong with our society. Well, well the way Rome worked was, and they were kind of smart in this, that Rome subcontracted out the collection of their taxes, uh, or their, quote, imperial revenue. And so how that worked is they rewarded the contract to be the tax collector to the highest bidder. And as long as the tax collector delivered on that contract, say it was a million dollars, whatever, a million dollars. As long as they gave a million dollars, they didn't care if they charged $8 million in taxes. They didn't care what taxes they charged as long as Rome got what was owed to them. And, and I mean, if you didn't mind preying on people, and if you really liked money, then this was a very lucrative business opportunity, a big-time investment. And, and, you know, we just think that the government is fleecing us now. Like back then, you could hardly move without being taxed for something. They had a grain tax, a poll tax, an income tax, a road tax, a bridge tax, a harbor tax, a market tax. 
And Matthew got to set the rules on those taxes. And sometimes you visit Matthew, he'd be in a good mood, and it'd be like 1% or something. And it's not so bad, but other times you, you may go to visit Matthew, and uh, maybe you had a really good crop, or you had a really good year. You go to him, and maybe that same tax that you just paid 1% on, all of a sudden it's like 20%, heck, 50%. And then you'd pay Matthew your hard-earned money, only to look up and see Matthew building a nice new house with your money, nice clothes with your money. You know, you, you look on whatever the ancient equivalent of Facebook, and, and there Matthew is posing with his new car. Um, and you've been keeping tabs because we keep tabs. And, and you know that he just got back from his fourth vacation of the year, all paid for with, guess whose guess who's money? Um, Meanwhile, I mean, you can't hardly afford gas to get to Jackson. I mean, if they could have beat Matthew up without Rome arresting them, they would have. And so there, was, there Matthew was in his tax booth where so many greedy acts had taken place. And Jesus walked up to him. And you know, there's so many things that Jesus could have said to Matthew at this point. You know, things that probably Peter and some of his disciples like, wished that he would say to, to Matthew. Things like, I bet your parents are real proud of you. How you take advantage of your people. But Jesus didn't say, I mean, y'all really, Jesus didn't say that. Jesus walked up to the most hated, the most unlikely, and you could argue the most undeserving of people. And notice the gracious simplicity to his call. Jesus didn't say, Matthew, look, (laughs) if you would stop doing this and start doing that, then you can follow me. He, he didn't say, if you're willing to shape up, then you can follow me. No, he simply said, follow me. Right now as you are. So a few years ago, one of our members sent me an email uh, or article that was talking about the current crisis within our youth ministry. And I found this kind of largely to be true. Um, the article was claiming that the majority of students in the country believe that their eternal destiny hinges on their moral performance. That, that Christianity is really kind of this giant game. I think we've mentioned this before. A giant game of kind of like Simon says, but it's Jesus says. That Jesus says do this, and so we do this. And Jesus says do that, so we, we do that. And then it gets to the point where uh, Jesus didn't say, and we're out. Well, Vody Bauckham said, Hell will be filled with people who didn't drink, didn't cuss, and may have even been baptized. And he asked the question, why? Well, it's because not one of those things ever made someone a Christian. So Jesus didn't say, follow the rules, Matthew, and you'll be good. Now, now, now following Jesus will ultimately lead us to being a... It gives us the best reason to be a law-abiding citizen. But with Jesus calling Matthew while he's in the act of collecting, like he's in the act of sinning, tells us it's way more relational. That Jesus would say things like, I am the vine and you are the branches. And as you abide in me, as you are grown in me, then you will grow. And so as we follow him, as we're struck with his gracious love to us, that is what transforms us. And besides, like, isn't, isn't that your story really? I mean, if you're really a believer, isn't that your story here? That Jesus came to you in your sin. You could even say in your tax booth. Like he walked up on you in your sin. 
and looked you in the eye. And there's so many things that Jesus could have said to you. He could have said to me that we all would have deserved. But he looked at you in your sin, and he called you to follow. Follow. And our lives have never been the same, right? Well, like the fishermen did earlier, um, Matthew, someone who had you know, immense riches, he found Jesus to be of more value than all of that. And so he left it. It was this irresistible call that Jesus gave, sovereignly gave to, to, to Matthew. And he left everything. He walked away from his tax booth and followed him. And it wasn't begrudging. No, like he followed in joy. You know, it, it, so much so that he decided to throw a party. And he had all this money. Well, what's he going to do? He threw this huge party. And he invited all of his tax collector center friends so that they could meet Jesus. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting in the Bible, like, like none or few of the good, decent, church-going people, the people that we think are, love Jesus, like it, it's, it's, it's rare that they get excited about Jesus in the Bible. And yet it's the outsiders, it's the tax collectors, you know, it's the, the prostitutes, the people who are on the margin of society, like they can't get enough of him. You know, in life we celebrate a lot of things, and good things, birthdays, marriages, anniversaries, graduations. But J.C. Ryle reminds us that there is another more important event truly worth celebrating. He says, it's the birth of an immortal soul, the rescue of a sinner from hell. It's it's the, the adoption, not just to a family, but into the noblest and richest of all families. Like You are adopted into the family of God. And so with that, the scene changes to Matthew's house, which is our our second point. You know, no rabbi, no Pharisee or scribe, like like no good and decent synagogue-going person hung out with tax collectors. Uh, Or or much less, they didn't even get invited to their parties. And yet, look who was at Matthew's house. Don't you, I love it that Matthew, that Jesus was invited to a sinner's party, um, now, now, the Pharisees, they see this, they hear about this, and, and so they start doing what Pharisees do. You know, they, they started grumbling and complaining because this was shaking things up, like how things were supposed to be properly done. Jesus was challenging one of their favorite and most dear things in all of life is what they called table fellowship. And, um, and you know, we, we would call it like supper club or supper group or whatever, you know, But the Pharisees knew that during this time, those who sat at your table, um, those were the favorites in your cell phone list. You You know, the list of people that can get to you even when you have your phone on Do Not Disturb, like it'll still go through. Um, These are your people. Like These are the people you are available for. But the people who did not sit at your table, well, they were on the outside. And for the Pharisees, there was a very distinct line about who was in and who was out, uh, who was worthy of their time and who was not. And they said things like, look, if you want to be with us, then clean yourself up. Like literally, like clean yourself up, look like us, act like us. They say things like, look, look, we're not exclusive. We're not exclusive. Just be like us and then you can join us. And how many churches, now they don't say that, but kind of look that way. And so if we were Sunday morning honest, the Pharisees were uncomfortable with Jesus for the same reason we can get uncomfortable with Jesus, right? If we were, to be honest, like we're, like we're all good with Jesus out healing sick people and 
doing good things. I mean, we might even, we might even join him. We might go on a mission trip. We'll go stack cans at the food pantry. Uh, but because we can do all of that and, and keep Jesus basically out of our business. But what happens when following Jesus actually starts affecting your house and who you have in your home and, and the friends that you reach out to? Like what happens when following Jesus takes us to Matthew's house? I mean, put yourself in Peter's situation where not only do you see Jesus extending grace and relating to the very people that you wish you could punch out who have probably robbed you, but we see that following Jesus not only leads us to seeing that, but it leads us to, to us being called to extend the same grace and the same concern and care to those whom we don't like. It's very uncomfortable. I mean, you could call it scarily uncomfortable. Like, we don't like this. The Pharisees didn't like it one bit. And they wondered, how could any decent teacher, how could anybody eat or reach out or show grace to these people? These people, they didn't even attend their church services. And I've shared this before again, but when Billy Graham died, Sean Lucas wrote a tribute to him on Facebook. And Sean said, uh, pastor at Independent Press in Memphis, Sean said that when he attended Bob Jones University, he said for them in that school, Billy Graham was public enemy number one. He said the bookstore even sold a book that warned of Graham's theological liberalism. And Sean then wrote, he said, looking back on all that now, I can see the ways that we all too often attack our should-be friends when they are busy doing the very thing that we ought to be doing, winning others to Jesus. Okay, that's what was going on here. Jesus was reaching out to the very people the Pharisees should have, could have been, and the very people we should be as well. Um, But then for the Pharisees, it got worse. Because Jesus wasn't just reaching out to them. Like if Jesus was sitting there preaching a sermon to them, telling them about how bad they are and why they're so bad and why they need to be not so bad. If Jesus was just doing that, that'd be one thing. But notice notice Jesus' posture at the party. You know, there's something about body language and just the posturing of people. Luke tells us that Jesus was reclining at table. And that's what set the Pharisees off. See, the Pharisees or, or, or any other rabbis, for anything, anything less than a posture of authority and a seat of authority, that was unacceptable. And, and yet Jesus is here reclining, assuming not an authority of, uh, a posture of authority, but rather an, a, a posture of approachability. <laughs> Or rather relatable, like he's like lounging on the couch watching the game with them. The the, the Pharisees are thinking, Jesus, do you realize what you're doing? Uh, It looks like you're trying to identify with these people. Uh, If if you're not careful, these unclean tax collecting sinners, like they might start thinking that you care about them, or or worse, that, that you're their friend. And it'd be easy to give the Pharisees a hard time. If this weren't also the case throughout, the church, throughout church history, um, you, you know, so in the 18th century, this is the 1700s, the 18th century, the Church of England became so proper and, and civil, and you could say so British, <laughs> um, that the church became inhospitable to mere commoners, like they wouldn't allow them in. And, and so John Wesley, you know, John Wesley never wanted to begin a new denom- denomination, but he found that there, was, that there was no room for the people at the margins of society in his church. Um, 
And so on April the 2nd, 1739, Wesley wrote in his diary, he said, at four in the afternoon, I submitted to be more vile. And that was his way of saying, away from the vestments, away from the fancy church, I'm just going to go to the people, preach the gospel. He said, I submitted to be more vile and proclaim in the highways the glad tidings of salvation. And as you know, Wesley, he preached in the fields, he preached in the mines, he preached in the graveyards to any who would hear. And revival sprung up, uh, one that Britain has probably not seen since. And, and then, lest we think that, that you know, we're ever immune from this, 100 years later, the, the Methodist William Booth saw that the very denomination founded on reaching outsiders itself had become ingrown, that it too had become elitist, which would then spur uh, William Booth to, to found the Salvation Army. And so this is always happening. We're always having to fight this. And so the Pharisees, they, they had all the civilities of religion, right? As Kent Hughes said, their conversation was a collage of Scripture and holy allusions. They never swore. They kept their homes in order. They regularly attended synagogue. They were, what they would say, good people who thought they had no need. And so to their question of, of Jesus why do you eat and drink? Like, like, why are you relating to sinners? Jesus answered with a medical illustration that revealed his mission. It's verse 31 there at the end. Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So Jesus says, I don't think you understand. Like literally the only reason I'm here is for the sick. And this, this shows his sovereign care because back then there weren't hospitals in which sick people would go to. Um, and so the doctors, physicians, they, they went to the patients. If someone was sick and needed to be healed, the doctor had to go to them. And, and so, you know, um, you know, when you're well, a physician or a doctor is like the last thing on your mind, right? Man, let's do all, do all kinds of other stuff. But when you're sick and say you have a tumor or you have something serious, like, the doctor's like, you're getting to that doctor. Like, you are so in need of a doctor. And, and that's what Jesus is trying to tell us. That's what he says next. Jesus continues. He says, I have, haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And with that, Jesus, Jesus flips the script on all, this whole thing. Because the Bible and, and life, as we live it, shows us that no one is righteous. No, not one single person and so what, is, what that means is, is Jesus is here for you. It, it means we've got to stop thinking that we're well. Like there ain't a well person in here. But actually, it means if you think, or, or it means that you can't even be a Christian if you think you're well. And literally, we heard it this morning, you know, the first membership question here is, is you declaring that you are sick, that you, you are a sinner whose only hope is throwing yourself on Jesus. So what we're seeing is like, y'all, we're the unclean sinners, outsiders. Like, we're the ones Jesus came to pull up a seat beside and to befriend so that he could call to repent and save. Like, it's, it's, it's not those people out there. Like, like, the whole lot of us are at this table. And we may not have robbed people of their money. Um, maybe some of us have. But we've robbed God of worship, and we stand in utter need of His forgiveness and grace. And so 2,000 years ago, guess where Jesus went? 
I mean, he, like, he went there. Like, he went to Matthew's house so that we all would see, just the, and the world would see, his radical offer of salvation and friendship to outsiders like me and like you. And then he would die on the cross so that if you are in Jesus, we could say with Paul, and this is what Lee read earlier this morning, that the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word and just the conviction of, um, because there are no doubt people I know that we just can't stand. Um, People who have wronged us, people that we, we wish we could beat up, and yet, if we look in the gospel, like that is the very people that Jesus extends grace to. And that's who we are, Jesus extending grace to us. And so break our hearts. Lord, show us what the gospel means um, for living in situations like this, showing grace uh, and care towards the undeserving as you have shown grace and care to us. Um, Lord, as we come to your table... Uh, We ask that you would um, take these common everyday elements and that you would set them apart to be a means of your grace to your people this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Hi, Richard Owens here. I just wanted to take a second to say thank you for listening to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church. Our prayer is that the Lord would use this message to encourage you in the gospel and that you would find Jesus to be more beautiful than you ever, ever imagined. If you'd like to find out more about who Jesus is or more about our church, I invite you to visit our website at wpcgreenwood.org. God bless.